Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On December 5, 1876, a fire broke out at the Brooklyn Theater in the heart of the growing downtown district. In less than an hour, the site was in ashes. Almost 300 people perished in the fire. It was the deadliest fire in American history at that time. In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we learn that one disaster in Brooklyn can tell us an awful lot about a time period. We'll explore leisure, reform, immigration, social divides, and collective trauma in late 19th century America. Fire shaped life in so many ways in 19th century urban places. It's amazing to think about the ways and impact that our, that our political discourse around government and private aid were really so deeply shaped and mm-hmm. set in this period yeah. in the late 19th yeah. century. Yeah. The benefit with oral history is that it certainly exposes you, if you listen, to the human experience of, of history and prompts you to ask questions about the human experiences of other historical moments for which we don't have these histories. The importance of empathy and understanding how empathy functions uh, in a historical moment, I think, is important for us to think about. We're talking about empathy as a methodology, yes. right? I mean, I think we're talking about empathy as a, histor- a tool of historical analysis. And when we use oral history, it really does change, not just sort of like the, the nuance of what we see, but it, sometimes it changes our understanding and our arguments of the very moment itself. So here, the other day I was sort of meditating on urban life and what um, what makes sort of living in New York unique. There's a lot of things, but the one thing I kept coming back to is the amount of times a day, whether we're in the subway or in a library or in the movie theater or at like a public concert, that we just have to take our safety in a dense public place for granted or else we just couldn't live our lives. Yeah, you have to kind of assume that, well, first you have to put your life in other people's hands, right? And you kind of have to assume that other people are looking out for your your safety and best interest. And whether those people are the people in charge or the person sitting next to you, right? Mm -hmm. Because you both might have to lean on each other to get to a safe place. And so... And I think you're also thinking about like the structures that exist, the laws, the regulations, Relations, yeah. the zoning requirements right. that have been put in place over time that like that sort of shield you from yeah. those dangers. I mean, I think we've all probably been to a party where we have exceeded the occupancy <laughs> requirements and we just kind of maybe we're like, oh, yeah, whatever. We're all good. And I, th- I don't think that we often think about why those occupancy limitations are in place. Right. Um, until, so, until until something happens. An event happens and unfortunately and tragically 
things have happened. And the topic of our episode today, the Brooklyn Theater Fire, is, is one such thing. Now, when you brought this topic to me, I didn't know what it was. I had never heard of this before. I hadn't either before I started working at, at Brooklyn Historical Society. And I have to say, I, I would, I, I'd be very interested to hear um, from our listeners if they had heard it. So just um, give us a shout out on Twitter and let us know if you had. This is when Brooklyn is a city unto itself, right? That's right. It's its own. It's not a borough. It's not a borough. We've talked about this before, but I just, I do think it's worth stepping back for a second and thinking about Brooklyn in the 1870s versus like a generation mm-hmm. before or a mm-hmm. generation mm-hmm. before that, mm-hmm. because Brooklyn was a massive city at this time, but this was like a relatively new thing you know in the 1840s and 50s you know, Brooklyn was growing but it was still a pretty sleepy town of like maybe 50,000 people and by the 1860s and 70s it was one of the major metropolises in the country at the time but I also think another phenomenon that is taking place at this time is of course the growing numbers of immigrants mm-hmm. who are coming mm-hmm. to settle in places like Brooklyn and actually like the diversification of a market of leisure at this time where theater owners are catering to, you know, Brooklyn's tawniest, but they're also uh, creating new, these new massive theaters with new opportunities for like tiered seating that allows a mixed class experience in theaters as well, which sounds like no big deal to us, but was like enormously sort of culturally new at the time. You know, it's interesting with these, even as these, Leisure opportunities avail themselves to people from different classes, right? There's multi-tiered seating, for example, in a theater. This was a period of significant inequality. This is the period where America is emerging as this industrial giant, but on the backs of of immigrant workers who are often exploited. The other interesting thing I think about Brooklyn that's important to give context on this time is that Brooklyn is defining itself in the shadow of New York City. So as New York is building, you know, libraries and museums and historical societies, so are Brooklynites Mm -hmm. in order to Mm -hmm. kind of create a culture that is meant to rival its like bigger sister across the river. And that goes for these kinds of, you know, tawny institutions, but it also goes for houses of leisure. And so it's really in the 1850s, 60s and 70s that you see the emergence of um, this theater row and newer and bigger theaters actually getting built. You know, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn theater that we're going to be talking about today was a relatively new theater for the time. It was quite lovely and it was supposed to be seen as sort of the cutting edge of theater right. simply because it could seat so many people. It could seat 1,600 wow. people. I mean, this is really sort of like a like a a peon to modern sort of entertainment, you know, um, the first time you were getting these many people squeezed into a room to see um, a play that mm-hmm. people both on the top tier, um, the top mezzanine, and then on the floor in the orchestra could enjoy together. And the theater was located right in downtown Brooklyn, like where Cadman Plaza would is now. And in fact, a little bit on the outskirts mm-hmm. of um, the theater row, which was a little bit closer to Flatbush. So if people um, are in Brooklyn right now, the site of the theater was on Johnson Street, which is close to where the post office mm-hmm. is today in Cadman Plaza. So this was a newer theater. It was sort of pushing up on the edge of the, of the theater district and um, really shows that the growth of this neighborhood was occurring on sort of on all ends. So on the evening of December 5th, 1876, 
next, a cold winter evening, about a thousand people get to the theater. They're headed to see a show, a popular show at the time called The Two Orphans. And Julie, what what happens when I walk into the theater? Well, I guess the first thing you'd do is you'd know your ticket would tell you where you were sitting. And this really matters for our story because there were a bunch of different kind of levels of seating. If you were from sort of middle, upper middle class background, you were likely purchasing the most expensive tickets. And those would have been in the orchestra. They would have been set back a little bit from the stage, but on the ground floor. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, in this case, you don't have to go up or down any stairs. You have relatively easy access you to the exit. sight lines, good to sight the action. Lines. You're close. You right. can hear you them can hear. well. Remember, there's no microphone. You can no be micro- seen like, exactly. by everyone in the theater. Exactly. Yeah. Now, they're not the only people on the floor, right. though, because there's also this kind of parquet seating in the very front it's almost like a pit in front of the um in front of the stage that's like the first row of a theater it's like, st- like the a neck standing the neck room, breaking right yeah. yeah exactly and so there would people would have been crowded in yeah. there as well and that would have made it a lot more difficult actually to get out of so there were uh, there was other working class seating as well there's sort of two levels in this theater it's actually quite high um the first level was a mezzanine level and there were two staircases that you could get up to um to get to that to that seating so when the fire breaks out there's immediately that impediment of having to get down the stairs but the absolute worst seating that you could have had this night would have been the balcony which was way up at the top of the theater and this was called family circle i know it breaks your heart to think about that right i mean so the these are accessible only via these narrow wind one actually one narrow winding staircase and the other twist with this location is that it's so high up, and where does heat and smoke right, travel? Right. Uh, but upwards. you know, it's, it's as you're describing this. I mean, I now you have me running through my head every concert venue I've ever been to. At yeah. the time, though, as you this theater was there was nothing wrong with it, it that's was right that it was way. built to code even the narrow staircases up to the top floor there's nothing illegal about the way this building was built and i think that's a really important thing for us to remember as we think about the aftermath of the fire and how is the theater lit <laughs> well i mean i think this is such an interesting thing about the 19th century is like there's so many things you could say about the 19th century i might call it the flammable century <laughs> <laughs> everything I, I mean, and i'm not laughing because to let me just say i'm not laughing to make light of people yeah. who died i just i'm laughing because i like yeah it's true, true. it's it really flammable crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean fire shaped life yeah. in so many ways in 19th century urban places and this is no different and i mean it just in so many ways not just like oh wood bu- wood buildings but like think about the things that were stored in warehouses mm-hmm. think about the bread and butter of like early industry like um a great example is like what, what like you said how was it lit right gas how was the scenery painted yeah. Well, paint was made out of things like linseed yeah. oil, yeah. which you put a match to it. Yeah. You know, I so, mean, I mean, and I, I want people to really grasp when we say gas, we're, not, you know, keep in mind, this is not little kerosene canisters <laughs> that are self-contained. This is a gas line, yeah. gas lines. That's right. Running to each of these, you know, outlets that have the flame sparking out of. And there's a guy <laughs> whose job is to control the gas output in the house, which is like, whoo. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And then you've got a thousand people packed into yeah. a place. And so, yeah. And materials 
that are flammable. So whether it's clothing, whether it's set pieces, whether it's the massive curtain, whether it's the wood frame um, of the balcony and the building itself was made of stone, but most of the things inside of the building would have actually been made right. of wood. It was a tinderbox. And, I mean, and if you want like a beautiful theater, come on, yeah. you want nice wood finishing, yep. you want yep. nice drapes, you want yep. nice, you know, upholstery, yep. you know, because you want, you want a nice looking theater. So yeah. the show is going okay. Right. Because I think it's now about 11 o'clock at night. It's the fourth of five or the fifth. It was one of the last two acts of the play. Right. So we've we've done all right. We've we are enjoying our show. And then what happens? Essentially, a piece of the scenery um, catches on fire from one of the gaslights in this space. And now the actors are very cognizant of the dangers of stampedes. I mean, this is another... There's a, Talk another, about yelling fire in a crowded another, theater. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and stampedes are another major yeah, part, yeah. especially of 19th century urban urban life. Um, so they don't want to make a big thing out of this, right? And so they actually continue acting while many of them are trying to fan or beat out the fire in back of them which uh, only s- proceeds to actually yeah. spread I, I think fire. I remember reading one of the actors on stage saying there's no fire that's part of the play right it's just so heartbreaking oh. because I think the goal was actually a, a, a noble one which right. was to keep people calm yeah. as they tried to put yeah. it out yeah. even as the fire was spreading rapidly but yeah. people obviously catch on right. very quickly i mean there's soot there's ashes right. raining down right. on people as the set is actually catching on fire and people begin to panic quite quickly yeah. right yeah so the orchestra people they're fine i mean they largely are able to get, go right out the door um but it is the rest of the people sitting in the largely working class seats that are in big trouble mm. okay so this fire is breaking out the folks on the main floor find an easy exit. Now, you know what happens when they open the doors? They let that air in that's, right. that's going to feed the fire. Right. And the people in the family circle. Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely the hardest. Hit. Yeah. So the people on the mezzanine, the second level, remember that one? So there are two staircases, yeah. and they're pretty yeah. straightforward ones. But actually, one of them was locked. Oh, no. So only one staircase yeah. down from the mezzanine. And then... Even from there, the balcony people then had to get down to the mezzanine and yeah. then get down. It's quite possible that, I mean, there are two things happening here. People being trampled. That's right. And or burned. That's right. Right? Well, and I also asphyxiated because yeah. all of the heat and the fumes yes. from the fire, which again, all yes. of these manufactured flammable things, people were being asphyxiated and sort of passing out on the top floor. And I think one of the real tragedies of this is that when the firefighters came in, they didn't see a lot of people coming right. down and assumed that all of them had indeed escaped right. when in fact most of them had passed out. It was horrible. And I think the fire did its, you know, ran its course in less than an hour. It was a yeah. unbelievably rapidly spreading fire. Yeah. And I think the actors, many of them thought that they would have chance to go change. Um, there were a few who went back to their dressing areas to change into, I guess, regular clothes, never to be seen again. Now, Kate Claxton, um, who was one of the actresses on the stage, uh, was able to get out in her performance clothes and they just kind of like found her wandering. 
Yeah, I think she like clearly had some kind of PTSD, yeah. right? They found her wandering in the cold city. She almost like didn't really remember what had happened to her and she talked about the trauma for like many years. Yeah, after you know, that. it's really interesting. If you don't want to be um trans historical and just like jump time, but I do think that there's something universal about the human experience of what's happening at this time. If you're in a crowd and you're in danger and I'm guessing some people will try to help some people, but most people are struggling. People are being trampled. You can't, there's no information. There's no one, no one knows where the safe direction is. So that gives you a sense. I mean, we've certainly had um, just this year alone, a kind of sense of people going through that horror. Uh, and that gives you a sense of how horrific this experience was for the people who were in this fire. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, what I appreciate so much about what you're saying is that I don't think it's transhistorical. I think it actually reminds us that as people living in a modern era, we should never look at the past and assume that the issues that were faced with tragedies like this do not continue to, yeah. to plague us yeah. today. I think about the there were there were two fires yeah, in the, the last few years, the, right? Yeah. There was one the Providence Night there, in Rhode Island. Yeah. I think there was a fire, uh, and they killed about a hundred people. Yeah. Um, pyrotechnics setting aflame the the sound insulation foam in the in the nightclub. Yeah. A lot of people, probably just as much or more initial injury, came from being stampeded and then probably unable to get out, yeah. and so they died in the fire. Then you had. The Artist Collective in Oakland, mm -hmm. the Rhode Island fire was like in 2003 or 2004. The Artist Collective fire was last year. Really recent, yeah. Yeah, uh, in a warehouse that wasn't specced for residential or entertainment, but there was a concert or a party going on there, and, and they had a fire. And, and so, you know, this is, as you said, I think quite poignantly an important reminder to us of these kind of important issues that we have to think about. Well, also, I mean, to bring it back to the history, when yeah. I think about, say, the like the Oakland one, yeah. you know, I mean, that does tell us something very particular about what's going on in Oakland yeah. this time, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, there's a massive transformation of yeah. space, yeah. gentrification, reimagining of neighborhoods yeah. without yeah. the kind of the zoning or the yes. laws keeping yes. up with yes. that, right? And I think one of the things that I think is really interesting about the 1876 theater fire is that to go back to our gilded age sort mm -hmm. of context here like this theater row was a booming business this was a time in which people were were investing were staking their claim were looking to make as much money as they possibly could sometimes cutting around the corners to make that money mm -hmm. without having mm -hmm. to put the money into mm -hmm. the business and ultimately what they found at this theater was actually an, an appalling lack of oversight on the part of the owners right so you know their hoses were disconnected from their local they did actually have a water line into the mm, space, but mm -hmm. they disconnected their fire hose mm -hmm. from it. That there was nobody, they had no safety protocols, nobody on site. They hadn't trained the actors in any way. There were no buckets. I mean, and so it, it again is like it is this glimpse into a moment of just sort of like naked wealth yeah. <laughs> making yeah. in New and York I, you know, and, and, the, and like the and like the human, the, the human, you know, collateral of that. You know, this story also brings up another important theme, memory, why we remember certain tragedies but forget others. You know, when I think of fire-related disasters, the mass deaths from fires, 
the fire that I think about or comes to my mind is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1911, where, you know, workers died and, and many even jumped to their death trying to escape a fire from a locked building. I mean, this was the worst industrial fire in American history up to that point. And this was very much a result of, of man-made uh, decisions, similar to the, the yeah. Brooklyn Theater fire. I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, why do we remember one fire mm. and not another? Why do certain things make it into, like, the canon of American history and others don't? Like, well, I, don't, I don't know the answer, actually. Yeah, you know, and it's it's an interesting question because I didn't know anything about the, the Brooklyn Theater fire. But I, I mean, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is kind of, like, drilled into our consciousness. As if you're doing Absolutely. history and, like, of the progressive era of that period— um, and not even us as, as yeah. historians. Do you think it's because there is this concept of like deserving and undeserving tragedy? And so like people who are dying in the workplace are people who are virtuous in a way that maybe people doing leisure or not? Maybe. And I also do fear that it is a byproduct of historians need for a narrative that fits the kind of the like the major points that they want to yeah. make. Like there's what is more evocative and like of the need for industrial reform right. than, you know, right. like hundreds of young women plunging to their yes, deaths because yes. they were locked into a factory. Yes. And not that this, you know, like to your point about deserving or undeserving, this is just not as, doesn't fit as neat a like historical lesson. And it is really remarkable because it is, while it's so unremembered, it does, if you go back and look at the press accountings of it, it seemed to be yeah. a deeply yeah. traumatic yeah. and even like um, identity forming moment in Brooklyn's history. I have seen a lot of portrayals of this when we found them as this like um, sort of like this, oh, this morbid moment in Brooklyn's history that really kind of blocks out the like massive loss of life and like the psychic impact that this might have had on local people. I mean, I think, you know, just and uh, not to add to the morbidity, but like over 100 people weren't couldn't even be identified. They mm. were buried in this mass grave in um in Greenwood Cemetery where hundreds came to mourn them. The bodies, the coroner had to leave the bodies out for public view for weeks so that people could come and see if they could identify their loved ones. Like I can't even imagine how publicly traumatic this must have been for people at the time. What a what an, an unbelievable personal experience that must have been. And it is interesting that we have this tendency to hold the 19th century at a distance. Yeah. And not really think about that kind of that human loss or that like collective trauma that people would have experienced at the time. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. One major result of the fire was that there were hundreds of families that were not only kind of emotionally bereft and traumatized, 
by this experience and the loss of their loved ones, they were also under real financial pressure yeah. with the loss yeah. of breadwinners, mm-hmm. um, especially these working class families where everyone was pitching in, where sort of every wage mattered in a family's survival. And one of the things that I think for us to appreciate when we say working families, we're not just talking about men working. A lot of times women were also earning wages and children. That's how dependent people were on a complete household income. I think that's exactly right. And it also the f- fact that, that those wages or those contributions were often obscured because of this focus on the male breadwinner, which I think is a really important backdrop to keep in mind as we look into the creation of a private aid organization called the Brooklyn Theater Fire Relief Association which was created in the sort of chaotic aftermath of this December 1876 fire. Yeah, and I think to give people a sense of why this was so significant, maybe we should talk a little bit about what aid was, yeah, what kind absolutely. of relief what kind of relief uh, support was available to people during this time if they fell into hardship. Well, I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is just how rapidly um, Brooklyn's population is growing. And many of the people who are fueling this population boom are immigrants. Right. And there are jobs here. But I think it's important to emphasize that these jobs are often unskilled jobs, irregular work, um, low pay. And sometimes people are making as little as, you know, five or six dollars a week. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of foreshadow as we go through these documents, I think I was struck by how meager the wages were yeah. and for what kind of work, exactly. right? It just like it it really was when you take a look at what people were doing to earn money during this period in Brooklyn. People were doing just about anything. They were any and everything. And living hand to mouth yeah. it was an enormously sort of unstable um existence. So, we can imagine this fire ravages hundreds of families in Brooklyn and the media aftermath, um, basically people are going to the municipal government for aid, which is not an unusual thing at the time. There emerged in the mid-19th century a system that, um, you know, was often called outdoor relief, which essentially meant that the government was giving out money, right? Mm -hmm, They were giving mm -hmm. out money or food or clothing, um, basically things um, to support the poor and to relieve them of their suffering. And this is a little bit in contrast to what was earlier called kind of indoor relief, which was the idea that you would bring somebody into like a poor house or an alms house or something like that. This is kind of like outpatient versus inpatient. That's a great great way of thinking about it. So with that, like as our backdrop, it's under these circumstances that, you know, like a grieving widow would go to the mayor and say, um, you know, my husband's wages are lost. I am I can't feed my children. I need your help. And so the 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 mayor's office, the municipal government began sort of giving out money as they would, but of course this was a you know, a lot of people were asking, right? Yeah, I mean it's one thing to do this for the occasional needy person, but this became overwhelming to the city government. And you also have during this time the formation of and the development of machine politics, right, Mm -hmm. where a lot of political decisions are driven by patronage. The idea that as as well-meaning as aid may be, it created opportunities for machine bosses, Democratic bosses, you know, the most famous one in New York is Boss Tweed, to kind of take that money even as it's meant, um, you know, for sort of noble purposes. And, And you couple that with like bureaucratic ineptitude and you just open the system up for all kinds of exploitation. 
if you look, for example, at the at the newspaper in even the days after the fire, it almost immediately there are these reports that um, people are basically defrauding the government. Yeah. They're claiming they yeah. lost a loved yeah. one, but actually just kind of taking money and taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, because, I mean, remember, as we talked about in the first segment, I mean, many of these bodies couldn't even be identified, right? right? Exactly. So people could come forward and be like, that was mine, that was my relative. This is really the beginning of the age of what historians call municipal reform that will then, in the next decades after this, usher in the, the progressive era, right, which right. Um, really lionizes ideas of efficiency um, and the power of middle and upper class experts. And in this case, that's exactly what Brooklyn does. They basically close the city coffers and they essentially privatize aid in the wake of the Brooklyn Theater Fire. So in late December, they basically create the Brooklyn Theater Fire Relief Association, which is a private donations-based association that's headed by a guy named Ripley Ropes, who is at the time seen as the, the civic leader of private aid initiatives. So this is fascinating. First of all, I wish that there was a way that we could pronounce this acronym with a cute pronunciation BT. <laughs> but but what's interesting is that you mentioned the progressive era reforms and for students of history this is usually turn of the century early 1910s and even into the 1920s when people kind of identify these laboratories of progressivism mm-hmm. and uh, what was interesting going over this history was how early this was. This is quite significant. This is a really one of the earliest attempts to uh, professionalize relief as a kind of systemized way of helping people. And this ethos of municipal reform, I think, has two really important and connected sides. On the one hand, as we were saying, there was inefficiency and space for graft in the the sort of the unorganized way the aid was doled out before this. And so there was a real, um, like a really well-meant um desire to create a system that really would serve the poor and the city better. On the other hand, there's a real judgment. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of moral Mm -hmm. judgment going Mm -hmm. on here. So it's upper and middle class people making a lot of moral judgments about the way that the poor lived, the way that they looked, their tendencies, um, in a way that even in the nicest way you would describe as paternalistic. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I'm going to use the word respectability or phrase respectability politics here. And of course, that phrase is most popularly attributed to Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham talking about um, late 19th century black women's movements, women's club movements. But you have that same the same idea, right? That what's equated with the ability for one to succeed in this society is the degree to which people can exemplify, you know, middle class values or what are identified as middle class values. And of course, this is a conversation that is still going with us today. We see this as we'll talk about the BTFRA. Absolutely. (laughs) We'll see see how, as you said, well-meaning, because this was the context, the social context that many of these relief experts, quote unquote, were coming from. And so they figured out, well, this is how we understand uh, striving good moral to be and that's what we're going to impose upon these working mostly working class people that we encounter exactly a set of standards that are called middle class but also have a lot of things that are unsaid in them protestant yes hard working yes white 
Yes. Um, male run yes. families, yes. you know. Yes. Um, and so, and I think as you say, this is something that we continue to grapple Correct. with today and sort of lionize today. So, I mean, in, I think a great way of actually making this plain and material to people is just to describe the process by which people had to go through to get aid from the Relief Association because it was it was onerous and it was mm-hmm. um, I invasive. Um, you would basically have to do a series of visits. You yourself, the 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 person who lost somebody and is looking for aid from this organization, would have to go to the office, be subjected to a very in depth interview, and then you would get a home visit mm-hmm. in which an aid worker would come to your house, interview you again, but then also make assessments about. The nature of where you right, lived, right. Um, the structures of your family, right, um, right. possible behaviors like drinking right. that might be seen right. as problematic. Right. Um, make sure that, you know, like there's no like, you know, messing around with somebody right, on the side right, in, in your house, right. um, making sure your children seem healthy and sort of moral. That's right. Um, and, you know, standing. making sure your place is clean. Yep. Right. Because if you couldn't even have maintain a clean apartment. Yep or clean home then you were you were not responsible you were not diligent you were not earnest it's interesting because there this was a donations based organization and it really reveals both like the potential for successful fundraising via donations and also the limits of it even just so we have the records of this organization the Brooklyn Theater Fire Relief Association at Brooklyn Historical Society the organization actually ended up giving out about $50,000 wow. between the fire and three years later when it disbanded. Um, families, we'll let our internet friends Google and yeah, figure out how much, how much that, that is in, today. In That's right. Yeah. And uh, about 188 families received mm. aid and they received an average of about $250 total. So this wasn't an insignificant amount of money that people were were getting, right? And the way that we know this is because we have all of the papers related to the Brooklyn Theater Fire from its inception in December 1876 to its disbanding in spring of 1879. It is a treasure trove. It really, it, you could do so much of this collection. Yeah. Every time I look at it, I I marvel at the potential. It's not huge. It's about three boxes. And the papers include um, records um, from the organization and the minutes of this institution. They also include things like receipts from the burials. Mm-hmm. But I think the real bread and butter of the collection is these case study notes mm-hmm. from when mm-hmm. the members of the BTFRA um, went to the houses of people and took notes on what they learned and what they saw of them. They tell us all this demographic information about the people who died, their ages, what they did, how much they made, where they lived. Um, And then they also include those kinds of moral judgments Mm -hmm. that we had talked Mm -hmm. about earlier. I kind of want to emphasize here and from the archival nerd in me of how valuable these papers are, how valuable these records are, because not only do they tell us how this organization operated, but they really give us a sense of how people were living, right? right, just with the basic information. There's also a lot of stuff and bias that's hidden um, yeah. between the lines yes. of um, of these papers. For example, when you look through these hundreds of records of case studies, you see mostly male names of yeah. the victims. Yeah. And the, the majority of the people that 
sought and received aid, according to these records, as we said, were male and they were white. Yeah. A lot of Irish families, German families, also people of sort of Protestant descent. And um, again, I don't think we should sort of take that as demographic fact of who specifically went to the theater and who didn't that night. Um, We are looking at a selected group of people selected both by those who opted to come forward and seek aid and also those who were sort of selected by the committee themselves. Now, all that said, we did find some outliers in this collection. That's actually those are the records that we want to talk about because we think they're 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 interesting in yeah. that they're and that yeah. they're different. Um, one of the case records that and again, we'll put pictures of all these records up on our show notes online is of a woman. Now, what's interesting is when you look at this form and it was a form in some cases there were just notes and in many cases it was a form and has named an address of deceased age she was 28 and it says if employed at time of death where and that is scratched out it's fascinating right so it's, it's so it's like not employed but then it has housekeeping for husband and family so it's, there's there's two things happening here on the one hand whoever filled this out was just like that's not a job mm-hmm. but on the other hand it was her job yeah that's right, right. There is a kind of implicit acknowledgement that that work enables her husband to That's be exactly work, to right. be a worker, That's right? Exactly to take right. care of these five children so he can earn wages. So it basically later on in the form, it says that he himself works um, as an entry clerk at a jewelry store where he earns not insignificant wages, $80 a month. Mm. And there is this like sort of implication that he'd have to take care of his children um, and thus lose that wage um, in order for the family to survive. Maybe the most important note here is the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where the visitor may make recommendations, more broad observations Mm -hmm. based on what they see. And it says, his family is now attended by their grandmother. Poor but striving family. Yeah, I mean, there is so much in that word striving. I think that goes back to our kind of, you know, Viberian ideas about the Protestant work ethic and the like the primacy of middle class values like this caseworker sees in this family real potential to succeed and is identifying this family as possibly, you know, losing out on that opportunity to move to the next level um, because of this. If you want to be called anything, it's striving right. because then there is a there's a notion that emerges out of these documents of who is worthy and who is not so worthy for relief. And it's not just based on need. Right. It's based on need. And as you said, people's assessment of these folks potential to get out of the condition that put them in you know position to have to to get relief in the first place one of the fears that you see articulated over and over by city governments and by um, charity leaders in cities in the 19th century is this concern of a sort of reinforcing or relegating people to permanent pauperism they call it the yeah. idea that again back to this idea of outdoor relief of giving money that this would create a permainently indigent underclass you know and this is still very much Absolutely. informing our political discourse Absolutely. today. Debates from healthcare to hurricane relief. That's right. Um, they are notions of who is deserving and who is not deserving of assistance. It's amazing to think about the ways that and impact that our that our political discourse around government and private aid were really so deeply shaped and mm-hmm. set in this period yeah. in the late nineteenth yeah. century. Yeah. So the next document we'll look at, and this is not on one of those official forms. Um, this is on what looks like stationary for the mayor's office. So it says mayor's office, City Hall, Brooklyn, 
and it's a handwritten note. On the first line, it says Hannah Brown dash widow, and then it's scratched out. And then it says children of brown colored left orphans. So I am presuming that maybe Hannah Brown initially survived the fire, yes, but yeah. her injuries, she eventually succumbed to them. That's my that's how that's my interpretation as well. And it's interesting. People might ask us like, well, how do you know um, like the people are Irish or the people are African-American? Um, and it, for the answer to answer the last one yeah. in the 19th century, I mean, we often presume that there people are recording stories about white people right. because when they're recording stories about black people, oh, they tell you that they're That's black. That's correct. Right? In all of these forms, and there were a few that we found that referred to um, black victims, um, it says colored after their name. Exactly. Um, which is quite striking I think when I first saw it but as as Julie said that's because there is an assumption of whiteness you know which is which contributes to the invisibility of whiteness that's right. in in our historical archive but this family is a very interesting family because we also we find out later that the children are sent to a relative outside of Brooklyn and that the family actually continues to receive aid for for several years the note indicates that the two children were aged 12 and 5 and that Mrs. Gibbons was given $10 in this particular instance. This is remarkable because I think we can say many things about the BTFRA, but at least in, it, in, in this particular instance, it does look like um, the relief efforts did not prejudice people in terms of race or ethnicity. And that brings us to the third document. So the first document was like an official form. The second document was on the, the mayor's stationery. And the third document was just, it, there's no, this is not official letterhead. It's just a, a letter or a note. And this apparently is another a person of color because it says Mrs. or Mrs. Jackson and in, in parentheses colored or followed by that colored. And this was a widow who lived at 925 Atlantic Avenue. She lost her husband who was earning $4 weekly. They have three children. The oldest looks to be seven years, the youngest three years. This family um, lives very poorly on the top floor of a dirty tenement house, only one chair to sit on. Scarcely. Yes, scarcely any furniture, no carpet. The rent is $6. Apparently she is sickly and has no other income. Uh, neighbors speak well of this woman. I, this to me, I think, embodies the paradox of proving your worthiness as yeah. a poor person, right? Yeah. Because our last family, Marianne Cadmus's family, um, you know, they were striving. Yeah. And so they were upwardly mobile. That was like a really attractive thing to the reviewer. And then on the other hand, this family, another thing that you have to prove is that you're poor, right? right? That you right. that you need right. the money, that right. your house is dirty, um, right. that you have no th nothing but a chair, you right. have no furniture. Right. But at the same time, your neighbors speak well of you. Well, this you. is the thing. So, you you know, people had to have character references, right? I mean, even the previous with the Brown family, the last line says uh, apparently a John Sutton 
uh, vouches for her, right. right? So, you know, there were instances where, you know, in the case of, of the jeweler, the, mm-hmm. not the jeweler, the guy who worked for the jeweler. The jeweler's there, wife. The jeweler, <laughs> um, there was no record, I think, at least in the document we saw, that there needed to be some kind of reference yeah. in the way that the latter two instances do. And, you know, this gives us insight into the kind of early, I guess, social work type. Yeah. I mean, social work doesn't really come into professionalization till the, the yeah. early 20th yeah. century. But this gives us an early sense of how people are trying to work through um, th- these challenges that, that they're facing in, in the cities. What's I th- what's important, you know, we talked in the previous segment about how in a lot of ways the fire has been forgotten in popular culture. But I think what's important is this, the precedents that are set here that actually do shape Brooklyn and in a lot of ways the United States in ways that we don't see. I mean, the people who ran this organization, Ripley Ropes and his staff, you know, they were outspoken critics of outdoor relief. Um, and in the years after this organization, they kind of held up this organization as an example of why private aid is better. And in the decades after this, you start to see a real cutting back on the government doling out money to poor people. I I keep having to say, but we're still dealing with this idea of the privatization of what many people believe should be publicly administered assistance, right? Methods of publicly administered assistance. We see this in debates about health care and, and work relief. I mean, it's the same same kind of ongoing um, debates. And it's really interesting that this was something that over, you know, nearly 130 or 40 years ago, people were already contending with. And you see um, in the years after this, the in the decades after this, the population of Brooklyn continuing to grow, the population of poor people and the extent of their need continuing to expand as this massive industrial economy expands across Brooklyn and the country. And in a lot of cases, the inability of private organizations to actually support the needs of Brooklyn's poor. For this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we had an interesting challenge. I'm the oral historian here at Brooklyn Historical Society, and one of the things that makes oral history not so helpful always is uncovering the past beyond the times when oral histories were recorded. So most of the histories that our collections in terms of oral histories reflect are 20th century, and especially late 20th century. So we were a little bit challenged of how we were going to use this segment uh, to talk about the Brooklyn Theater of Fire and its impact. The Brooklyn Theater of Fire was a tragedy that took up sort of one night and then played out over the next couple of weeks and years. But it really was, in some ways, a quick moment, um, one that was unbelievably deadly within an hour of the event ending. And we actually went into our oral history collections and just chose a clip from a collection that addresses a very different kind of tragedy, one that was slow moving, almost quiet in the beginning, but that ultimately ended up being uh, affecting tens of millions of people on a global scale. 
And that is our AIDS Brooklyn Oral History Project collection, which documents the experiences of HIV-positive people and their family members, their caregivers, their community members in the late 1980s and early 1990s. The benefit with oral history is that it certainly exposes you, if you listen, to the human experience of, of history and prompts you to ask questions about the human experiences of other historical moments for which we don't have yeah. these histories, right? And so this particular uh, collection and the, the clips that we're going to listen to from this, this oral history helps us think about those issues. Yeah, and I'll say that throughout um, throughout thinking about this tr- this 19th century tragedy in Brooklyn, we we really came upon obstacles of that kind of historical empathy, because with the collections that we have and the and the archives that we have, what we don't have is the voices, um, the 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 feelings of the people that were affected by this, of the family members that were left behind, and dealing with the emotional pain of the loss of a loved one for for years after the spectacle of this particular fire subsided, um, or the experiences of the of the relief workers yeah, um, yeah. who went from house to house, or the people who were sort of running this relief effort for years after. And so I think what we want to do here is we want to look at a late 20th century tragedy and think about what kinds of lessons we can glean from those left behind in the 19th century. So with that, we're going to play our first clip. This is an oral history interview with Barbara Norris. She was born in Harlem and moved to Brooklyn, where she worked as a nurse from the 1970s to the early 90s at Woodhull Hospital in the Bushwick neighborhood of Brooklyn, where she worked at the AIDS clinic. I can't see myself coming out of the clinic because I feel like I would be abandoning my patients. But I can't see myself staying there because I feel like I'm abandoning myself. Okay, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, I was just on vacation for two weeks. When I'm on vacation, I have nothing to do with HIV or anything about it. I just totally, you know, relax. And then it gets to the point sometimes you just can't handle another problem. I'm a human being. I have problems of my own. I have things that's going on in my own head. And then to put somebody else's problem there, you know, sometimes it comes to be a dumping. They dump all of it onto you. You help them handle it. They feel better. And you're sitting there feeling wiped out. And that's basically what it's like almost every single day that you work. One of the reasons why I think we chose this clip is thinking about the second segment where we looked at the uh, records written by or left by relief workers. They almost became invisible. Uh, and in our even in our discussion, we were focused on like their judgment mm. and what they told us about the lives of the people that they were visiting or trying to give relief to. And what that said of, say, like the larger issues of the Relief Association and privatized charity. And we kind of lose the human experience and the impact on the the worker. And it. So there's there's two things happening here. There's one obviously specific about the experience that Barbara Norris is talking about. But I think the other thing is that it prompts us to think about and ask questions, even if we can't find the direct answers of what those relief workers went through, burying charred bodies or preparing charred bodies for burial, visiting these homes where you know that all you can give is maybe like $10, and but that might not even help this family. 
Yeah, the, the countless houses that they visited where there were probably children who were hungry, right? Where they were witnessing people in really abject poverty. A lot of reporting of people who were sick, who were chronically sick when they were visiting this place. And I think there's something really powerful about what um, what Barbara Norris says about the kind of the symbiotic relationship between the burden of this work and also... Um, as you go on the increasing feeling of responsibility yeah. and of it being an essential part of what you do and even perhaps your identity right oh i love that line where she's like i can't abandon my patients but i also can't abandon myself yes yes which is also enormously self-reflective about one's own sort of uh inability to care for others unless you care for yourself and I think what is really to me very human about Norris's observations is that she could acknowledge that while still saying and admitting like and I struggle with that balance every day Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so let's listen to another clip that I think continues to get at that question of um, what it means to provide um, support and relief for people in the face of a tragedy AIDS and working in the clinic has changed the way I feel about gay men and has changed the way I feel about intravenous drug users and the way I feel about uh, lesbians. When I talk to my clients and they're talking about the love and the relationship that they have with their partner, I can't see their partner as being the same sex as they are. They're talking and feeling about love the same way that I talk and feel about love, the same way I have feelings about someone. When I look at people who are intravenous drug users, there was a reason for them using the drugs. There was a lot of things going on in their life. And now they've changed their lives and their lives are different. And their lives are no different than mine's every day. What I have to deal with with my children and what I have to deal with my bills and my finances. It's the same thing with lesbian women. When they sit down and they talk about their relationship, I'm now seeing it from a different you know, idea. They love the same way I do. You know, they hurt, they cry, they feel pain the same way I do. So it's made me look at the whole human race differently. Nobody's different. It doesn't make a difference what color you are, you know, what your sexual preferences are, or even at the fact that you were or still are an intravenous drug user. Um, those things are all, all different. They were all changed. You know, we could, um, you know, there's a very long list of ways that um, the AIDS epidemic is different than the Brooklyn right. Theater Fire. But what's really interesting here is that one thing that really connects them is this idea of social judgment and social stereotypes around a particular tra- tragedy. And so we talked about the stereotypes that the poor dealt with mm-hmm. in the 19th century. And here we have another essentially relief worker really confronting head on the stereotypes that she brought to the table um, when thinking about people who were dealing with HIV AIDS, whether it were gay or le- gay or lesbian people or whether it was intravenous drug users and the way that that intimate experience of care uh, broke down all those preconceived notions she brought to the table. One of the things that oral history depends on is empathy. That is the, I don't want to say currency, but that is the connection between an interviewer and a narrator. It's just like you, you listen for understanding. In this particular clip, and really this entire interview, and so many interviews in this collection, empathy is not only something that connects the listener to the narrator, it's something that the narrator, the narrators themselves 
have to like diffuse them. And yes, there's clearly no comparison um, between the historical context of HIV AIDS and the Brooklyn Theater fire. But this, in, the importance of empathy and understanding how empathy functions uh, in a historical moment, I think is important for us to think about. And, and you know, it's, it's funny as listening to these clips and talking about them gives and I, I would encourage people to go back and listen to our segment too right because I, these these two segments need to be listened to together together yeah. right because historians really risk with our emphasis on the archives a kind of history that lacks empathy um, with this, you know, because it's all like paper, paper, paper. And I, I look, that's the primary sources. That's why it's important. But we have to be able to think about, even if we can't find the signs of, think about the, this question of empathy. And, you know, this, we we don't have a record of how these relief workers were impacted going into these homes, seeing, yes, maybe these were striving families indeed. These were hardworking people. They were not deserving of the fate that befell them, right? And we don't know how that transformed the the lives of the people that interacted with them. Well, and it's interesting. Uh, I didn't realize we were going to go this meta with our field. But actually, (laughs) it's more than just the sources that, um, that, that push historians away from empathy. It's something I think even bigger than that, which is that we're a social science. Yeah. There's a lot of debate about whether history is a social yeah. science or part humanities, of the humanities. Yeah. But, you know, history, journalism, sociology, there no matter how much we recognize that there's no such thing as objectivity, it still continues to be something that really shapes the field, yes. right? Yes. And so the idea of feelings of empathy um, are seen as problematic, mm-hmm. right? Um, to the nature mm-hmm. of the way that we approach things. But I really do think that there's a... Like, we're not talking about empathy. We're talking about empathy as a methodology. Yes. Right? I mean, I think we're talking about empathy as a histor- a tool of historical analysis. And when we use oral history, it really does change not just sort of like the, the nuance of what we see, but it, sometimes it changes our understanding and our arguments of the very moment itself. The other thing that comes to mind is that we were talking in the last in the last two segments about how a lot of these ideas about stereotypes – about whether it's the poor or whether it's intravenous drug users mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or gay people mm-hmm. in this case, mm-hmm. um, continue to shape the way we look at the world today. And listening to this oral history just really makes me realize that if more people knew different people, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that it actually really might change the yeah. political discourse yeah. um, and the nature of who is worthy and unworthy of aid. As always, BHS has an impressive lineup of events for you to check out. And I want to, again, encourage everyone to check out my co-host Julie's ongoing series, Women's Suffrage Turns 100. Uh, This is a three-part series. The first is on November 1st. And if you happen to miss that one, there are two more on November 6th and November 8th. Details for the panels can be found in our show notes. 
I'm excited about event at the end of the month that is going to start to dig into some really important research that's been taking place over the past, I'd say, like 10 years or so. Um, a lot of people linked to elite northern colleges have been doing deep dive investigations into the into the ties of those schools um, to slavery and the way that the wealth generated by slavery basically led to the wealth generated by those by those institutions. And I mean, this has happened at Georgetown, Columbia, you know, Princeton, Brown, and Yale. And some of the leaders in this research are coming to BHS. This is exciting. I know. I'm so psyched yeah. about this one. This will be moderated by Craig Wilder, author of Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities. So again, the event is Elite Northern Colleges and Their Ties to Slavery. That's Thursday, November 30th. The doors open at 6. Event is at 6.30. It's $10 general admission, 5 for members, which we know all of our listeners are by now. And we will be linking to that event on our show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on any podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. 